The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18. It says, From there Abraham journeyed through the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent him and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my wife, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And then God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Adina. Let's pray this morning. Father, we read in Psalm 19 that your law is perfect, reviving the soul. We read that your testimony is sure making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, giving joy to the heart, 
and your commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. So please, Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, we pray that you would revive our souls, give wisdom to our minds, impart joy to our hearts, and enlighten our eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever I eat fast food, I know what's going to happen, right? Uh, I'm going to eat it, and it'll taste relatively good as I'm eating it, or at least satisfy a, a certain kind of craving. But after that, for the rest of the day, probably, I'm just going to feel blah. Right? I mean, that food is going to sit in my stomach like a bowling ball and just make me feel fatigued and bloated and just gross uh, for the rest of the day. And I'm going to ask myself, like, why did I ever think this was a good idea to eat this burger or whatever it was? I mean, I knew what was going to happen. I knew how I'd feel. I knew on some level that it wouldn't be worth it. And yet, I gave in to my cravings. It's kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but I probably do that to myself, I would say, at least once a month, uh, often more than that. And that's a good picture of what we do in many areas of our lives, including with uh, things that are much more serious. Even though the Bible teaches us that those of us who are Christians have been changed from within, we still have a tendency to go back to certain sins again and again. As the old saying goes, or as the saying goes, old habits die hard. And even though we know certain things are wrong and we know the effect they have on our relationship with God and we know that we'll regret them, for some reason we keep falling back into them. For some of us, it's losing our temper. For others, it's looking at pornography. For others, it's participating in gossip. And on and on we could go, right? Substance abuse, being deceptive, holding grudges, speaking carelessly, and dozens of other things. Like if I didn't mention whatever sin seems to be a particular struggle for you, then just fill in the blank, right? Because every single one of us struggles with certain sinful tendencies that cause us difficulty again and again. Even though we might desperately try to put an end to these tendencies, we still continue to battle them on a regular basis. And whenever we lose that battle and find ourselves falling into the sin yet again, we often feel tremendous shame. And we might sometimes wonder, is there a limit to how many times God will forgive me for this sin? Or maybe, does God still love me? Will I ever again get to experience that sense of closeness with God? Will God still use me in a meaningful way for his kingdom? These are the kinds of questions that so often run through our minds. Thankfully, though, I believe our main passage here in Genesis 20 has a lot to say to us in the midst of our struggles and these various questions we often have. Because as we'll see, 
Abraham has some struggles of his own, doesn't he? And one of those struggles is that he sometimes gets, uh, I guess you could say, a little creative with the truth and fails to mention very conveniently uh, certain aspects of the truth that are very important, such as the fact that he and Sarah are married. Look at verse 1 in the beginning of verse 2. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now, if that lie sounds familiar to you, there's a good reason. Right? This is not the first time that Abraham's told this lie about Sarah. Uh, back in Genesis 12, he told the same lie to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Abraham knew that Sarah was very beautiful and was afraid that you know, someone in Egypt would want her so badly for their own wife that they would kill Abraham in order to have her. And so Abraham lied and told everyone he encountered in Egypt that Sarah was just his sister. So acting on that information, uh, Pharaoh took Sarah to be his wife. However, uh, when God afflicted Pharaoh and his household with plagues, the truth came out that Sarah uh, was indeed Abraham's wife, and Abraham and Sarah were then forced to leave Egypt in disgrace. Yet here in Genesis 20, Abraham tries telling the exact same lie Yet again. I mean, clearly it worked so well the first time, so why not try it again, right? I mean, if these were the only two accounts of Abraham that we had in the Bible, we might conclude that he's not exactly the, the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, then after that, not surprisingly, the latter half of verse 2 records that Abimelech, uh, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Again, just as Pharaoh had done in chapter 12, right? Didn't see that coming. Um, Abimelech saw Sarah was beautiful. He'd been told that she was available, that she wasn't married. And so he sent for her and took her to be his wife. We then read in verses 3 through 7. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman that you have taken, for she's a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did not he himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And in, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You and all who are yours. So talk about something that will get someone's attention, right? When God, when God appears to you and, and basically says you're a dead man, uh, I think that's hard to ignore, right? That's pretty much guaranteed to get anyone's attention immediately. And God makes Abimelech's options very clear, doesn't he? He says that he only has two options. He can either return Sarah to her husband or he can die. Not much of a, uh, a choice there, I suppose. Um, so when, when God wants to play hardball, he really I guess, knows how to do it. And I think it's very interesting to uh, compare 
this passage with what happens in Genesis 12, because the, the way these two stories unfold is just so similar to each other. And yet it's notable that in contrast to Genesis 12, this passage in Genesis 20 goes out of its way to emphasize that there was no sexual contact between Abimelech and Sarah. Uh, in Genesis 12, we kind of had to infer that from the text. But here, it's emphasized several times. Verse 4 clearly states, Now Abimelech had not approached her. And in verse 6, God says to Abimelech that it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. And the reason that's so important in this passage is because of the son that God had promised that Sarah would miraculously conceive. It had to be very clear that that son belonged to Abraham. There could be no doubt that he was Abraham's offspring because that was the essential part of God's covenant with Abraham. And uh, the fact that Sarah had no sexual contact with any man except for Abraham does indeed continue to be clear throughout the passage. The story then continues in verses 8 through 12. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom such a, a great sin? You have, not, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister. The daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So, yeah, fun fact about Abraham. Uh, his wife was actually his biological half-sister. Right? The daughter of his father, though not of his mother. Uh, that's obviously pretty messed up, and that kind of thing would later be clearly prohibited in the book of Leviticus. So Abraham's lie, though, did have a measure of truth Mixed in with it. However, as uh, J.I. Packer has written, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And that's certainly the case here. Like, even though Abraham might have tried to justify this sin in his own mind by telling himself that it was at least partially true, that didn't make it any less of a lie. And by the way, this is a good reminder for us of something we talked about last week, that it's so easy for us to come up with a justification in our own minds for the sins that we want to commit. That's why it's so important for us to take measures to keep that from happening. Um, one essential measure that we can take is to maintain involvement in a healthy local church that isn't afraid to call sin what it is. Uh, we can also make sure that we're reading the Bible on a regular basis and letting it have its intended effect on us, which includes sometimes stepping on our toes and uncovering sins in our lives. And then a third measure we can take is to make sure that we're developing meaningful relationships with other Christians, and specifically other Christians 
who are willing to lovingly point out sins in our lives. Of course, here at Redeeming Grace, a key way we try to facilitate those kinds of relationships is, is through community groups. So these are all ways in which we can guard ourselves against the tendency that all of us have to manufacture a justification in our minds for the sins that we want to commit. Then moving forward in the passage, Abraham continues his pitiful explanation to Abimelech in verse 13. And when God caused caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, Sarah, this is the kindness that you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So here we see that this lie about Sarah only being Abraham's wife was premeditated. It's not like Abraham just had a moment of weakness once in a while and, and uh, just had a, made the spur of the moment decision and, and, and slipped up and told this lie. No, this was an ongoing arrangement that he and Sarah had. Likewise, I imagine that just about every one of us has deep-rooted sins that we've embraced and that have honestly become patterns of life for us. And maybe a lot of the time we've embraced them and tolerated them for so long, we don't even think about how wrong they are anymore. We've just kind of become used to them. But of course, that just doesn't change the fact that they are still there and are still displeasing to God. We then read in verses 14 through 18, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So that's the effect that Abraham's sin had on Abimelech and Abimelech's household. And yet as we consider Genesis 20 as a whole, I believe the main idea here isn't so much about Abraham's sin, rather focuses on God's grace to Abraham in the midst of his sin. God continues to be gracious to Abraham despite Abraham's foolish decisions. That's the main idea. God continues to be gracious to Abraham despite Abraham's foolish decisions. Notice all the ways we see God's grace displayed toward Abraham. First of all, God displays his grace simply by what he doesn't do. He doesn't immediately punish Abraham by striking him with some sort of plague or other affliction. Instead, it's actually Abimelech, right? And Abimelech's household who are afflicted in this passage rather than Abraham. God also doesn't withdraw from the covenant he had made with Abraham. He doesn't tell Abraham, you know, I made this covenant with you with the assumption that you'd be better than this. I didn't think you'd be 
this back. So now I'm going to, you know, no, no more land, no more offspring. You know, the, the, that thing I said about you being a blessing to the world, that's off. No, God doesn't say that. And then we also see God's grace toward Abraham, not only in what he doesn't do, but also in what God does do. God actively watches over Abraham in this passage. In verse 3, like we already talked about, God threatens Abimelech with death if Abimelech doesn't return Sarah. And we then read in verse 17 that God had afflicted Abimelech already with some sort of uh, unspecified disease. And we also learn that he had afflicted the, the, the women in Abimelech's household with infertility. And the reason God did all this was as a way of watching over Abraham and making sure that Abimelech followed through with returning Sarah. And then, as if that weren't enough, God even topped it all off by leading Abimelech to offer a permanent dwelling place to Abraham anywhere he liked and to give Abraham a massive amount of additional wealth, including animals and servants and a thousand pieces of silver. I mean, God did all of this for a man as foolish and inconsistent as Abraham. I mean, the patience and grace God exhibits toward Abraham are absolutely incredible. Similarly, for those of us who are Christians, God shows us extraordinary patience and grace as well. Even in the midst of our frequent failures and shortcomings and sins. You know, sometimes we might be tempted to think that we've exhausted God's patience and used up his grace after committing the same sins again and again. We might imagine that God's only willing to forgive us up to a certain point. You know, that there's a, maybe a quota or a limit to the number of sins we commit or the number of times we can commit a certain sin, and that once we reach that quota, that's it. God loses his patience and stops being gracious. Or maybe it's kind of like the way some cell phone data plans are set up, and after we use up premium access to God's grace, he then throttles us back and only gives us the minimum amount of grace we need to make it to heaven. And on the one hand, there's a sense in which all these, this kind of mentality is understandable because after all, that's more or less the way virtually all human relationships work. In almost any relationship between you know, two people, there are limits to what people are willing to put up with. If you offend someone enough or do something that's serious enough against them or repeat a certain wrongdoing a, a certain number of times, their patience and perhaps even their love for you will eventually run out. But that's not the way it is with God. If you belong to him, then it's impossible for you to screw up badly enough or, or to, to sin enough times and get to a place where God's grace 
won't reach you. There is nothing that you can do, dear brother or sister, to cause God to stop loving you or to stop being gracious to you. God is just as committed to being gracious to you as he was to being gracious to Abraham, if you're his child. And he does that in two ways for us. There are two ways God shows his grace. First, he forgives us for our sins. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 states that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we've got two options. We can either deny our sin or confess our sin. And if we confess our sin, then God doesn't pause to evaluate how bad our sin is or check his records to see how many times we've committed a certain sin in the past before he decides what he'll do. No, what does verse 9 say? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We then see a few verses later in 1 John exactly how God's able to do that. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So whenever we sin, we don't have to face the consequences for our sin. Of course, ordinarily, those consequences would be unimaginably severe because any sin that's, that's committed against an infinitely holy God demands infinite punishment, right? It demands eternity in hell. That's what we deserve. But God's graciously provided us a way to, to be rescued from what we deserve. And that way is through Jesus. We're told here in verse one that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous just think about what an advocate does in a courtroom setting. In our modern judiciary system, we usually call this person a defense attorney. So this advocate or defense attorney will work with someone who's been charged with a crime in order to build a defense strategy, uh, gather evidence perhaps, uh, negotiate with prosecutors, and just prepare arguments to be used in court. An advocate is there in order to help the person who's been charged with the crime and make sure they have fair representation. And that's the role Jesus has on our behalf before God the Father. And yet Jesus only has one legal strategy that he ever uses. Regardless of who he's representing as an advocate, Jesus defends the person with the same legal strategy every single time. And we see what that is in verse 2. John writes of Jesus that he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, for Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins simply means that he is the sacrifice 
He himself on the cross is the sacrifice offered to God the Father that absorbs God's righteous wrath against sin and thereby appeases God and satisfies God's justice. Essentially, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. And that's the basis upon which Jesus, now resurrected from the dead, acts as our advocate. His strategy, whenever we sin, is to go before God the Father and, uh, in a certain manner of speaking, remind the Father of his sacrifice on our behalf. He doesn't try to argue that we didn't sin or that our sin isn't really that bad or that God should just overlook our sin. Instead, Jesus reminds the Father that he himself died on the cross as the propitiation for our sins and that all who put their trust in him are therefore forever and irrevocably forgiven. That's it. That's the only defense strategy Jesus ever employs. And it's the only one he needs because it works every single time. No matter how badly we've sinned or how much we've committed a certain sin. In addition to that, uh, another way in which God's gracious to us is that he not only forgives us, but he also continues his work within us. Abraham's sin didn't stop God's continued work in Abraham's life or keep God from accomplishing his purposes in Abraham. Likewise, with those of us who are Christians, God never gives up on his work in us or discontinues his work in our lives. He never says, that's it, I'm done with you. Instead, even in the midst of our stumbling and all of our failures, God continues to accomplish his work in us of conforming us and, and transforming us to be ever more like Jesus. God's on a mission to transform us to be more like Jesus in the way we think and speak and, and act and live, and he won't let anything stand in his way. Not even our own foolish decisions can ultimately keep him from accomplishing his purposes within us. Several years ago, I saw a video that seems to illustrate this very well. Uh, now understand, it's certainly my, my intention uh, to make fun of anyone who's elderly or who has mobility issues or anything like that. Uh, however, uh, you can push play now. This video just seemed to illustrate our sanctification so well, I could not use it. Um, sanctification, by the way, is simply the process of us becoming more like Jesus. And uh, as you can see, the man in this video is having some difficulties, right? He is just not contributing very much at all to getting to the second level. But in spite of his weakness and limitations... What does the escalator do? It gets him where he needs to go, right? It gets him to the second level. 
I mean, is that not an accurate picture of the way it so often works with our sanctification? I mean, we stumble and we fall and we make a mess of things on a regular basis. (laughs) Let's be honest, almost continually we make a mess of things. And yet God graciously continues his work within us of making us more like Jesus. And one of my favorite verses is Philippians 1.16, or 1.6, where Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The majority of other translations say, until the day of Jesus Christ. No matter how much we stumble or how hard we fall, the same God who began a good work in us at our conversion will see that work through to completion until the day Jesus comes back. I mean, is that not one of the most encouraging and comforting things you've ever heard? It might be two steps forward and one step back throughout most of your life. I know for me, it it often is. But rest assured that you can't out-sin God's grace. You can't out-sin God's grace. So very briefly, here are four applications of all this. Uh, Observing the dynamics of God's grace toward Abraham in Genesis 20 and considering the various dynamics of his grace toward us today should lead us to live in these four ways. First, be grateful, but not presumptuous. Be grateful for God's grace, but don't presume that he'll always shield you from the earthly consequences of your sin. He may have shielded Abraham from a lot of those earthly consequences in Genesis 20, but that doesn't necessarily mean he'll do that for you in every situation. I mean, just think about King David in the book of 2 Samuel. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered, God forgave him, but there were still severe earthly consequences for David in the form of incest among his children, and the terrible family drama that resulted from that, as well as ultimately a civil war in Israel as David's son Absalom tried to take the throne by force. So don't presume that God will shield you from all of the earthly consequences of your sin. Second, be prepared for significant change in certain areas in your life to take some time The reality is that some sins just prove to be more difficult to eliminate than others. Uh, I've heard it compared to different things trying to turn around. You know, if someone is just walking somewhere, like they can turn around almost instantaneously, right, and begin walking the other direction. But, you know, if someone is riding a bike and wants to turn around, it's going to take a few months, right? They're going to have to slow down before they can make the turn and then begin pedaling in that opposite direction. And then turning around will take even longer for someone who's in a car traveling at 60 miles an hour. And it'll take even longer than that for someone who's in a, maybe a speedboat traveling at maximum speed through the water. 
And then on the, the far end of the spectrum, we're told that large cargo ships take an enormous amount of time to turn around. I mean, they, it takes them miles to slow down before they can even begin making a turn. Similarly, there are some sins that are so deeply ingrained in our lives and so stubbornly persistent that walking in victory over them on a consistent basis just takes time. So don't be discouraged if repentance of a certain sinful tendency takes a while and proves to be a process. Don't give up. Keep striving in the power of the Holy Spirit toward consistent and lasting change. Then third, be aware that God uses imperfect people all the time. If you're a flawed person who doesn't have it all together, join the club, first of all, and rest assured that God still wants to use you for his kingdom, just as he used Abraham in Genesis 20. Thankfully, God doesn't pick the people he's going to use the same way middle schoolers in PE class pick kids for their dodgeball team. Right? Instead, God often chooses to use people who might show, uh, seem to show less potential than others and who are more flawed to do great things for his kingdom so that it'll be clear that he's the one doing those great things rather than us. You know, Satan loves to try to use our sins to convince us that God can't use us. And Satan does that in order to discourage us and get us off mission. So don't let him do that, right? Keep seeking to reach out to other people and, and engage people with the gospel and, and invest in other people's lives and make an impact for the kingdom of God. Let God's grace overshadow your weakness. And finally, be patient uh, with the failings of others. You know, it's amazing how we can receive so much of God's patience and grace toward us and yet be so quick to be impatient and ungracious toward other people. The reality is that people sin. And yes, that means they will sometimes sin against you. They'll also often do things that aren't necessarily sinful per se, but they just irritate you, right? And they make your life inconvenient and uh, get on your nerves. And in many instances, it just, it takes time for people to get to a point in their, their spiritual maturity where those kinds of irritating tendencies aren't as much of an issue for them. And so don't expect other people to learn in a day what it took you a decade to learn. Exhibit the same patience and grace toward them that God has exhibited and, yes, continues to exhibit toward you. 
So those are four ways in which we can live in light of God's patience and grace here in Genesis 20. And as we've said, this patience and grace are only available to us because they were purchased by Jesus on the cross. Every ounce of grace that we have ever received or ever will receive flows to us through Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. You know, it's interesting how as we look at Genesis 20, God doesn't heal Abimelech directly, does he? Curiously, he insists on doing so through Abraham's prayers. Did you catch that in the passage? Uh, God tells Abimelech in verse 7, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he, the same guy who sinned against you, will pray for you, and you shall live. Then after Abimelech does so, verse 17 tells us, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. So God was determined to use Abraham as a vehicle of healing for Abimelech and Abimelech's household. And similarly, it is through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, and him alone that we are redeemed from our sin and experience the many facets of God's saving grace. Grace. 